Okay, find your find your seats. Let's open our scriptures to First Peter, First Peter chapter two, and we will today continue in our study of that portion of God's word. First uh, Peter chapter two. Uh, I'm going to pick up the reading today, starting in verse four even though we began to look at some of those verses last week. But uh, verses 4 through 8 are really connected together, and so I'm going to read all of them, even though we've begun to look at the verses. So, 1 Peter, (coughs) excuse me, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. (coughs) Excuse me. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who has spoken, and that... Not only have you spoken, but you ensured that what you said would be written down, made accessible to us. Beyond that, part of the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts about the things you've said. So in this time that we have together, would you carry out that ministry, that we would understand what you've said, why you've said it. We would recognize clearly how it applies in our lives in the circumstances of our lives, and in what you're doing within our lives. Give us alertness of mind, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remember, chapter 1 ended, and then we got into the chapter 2, looking at some of the things that God was doing within us, and what he was doing with us. Uh, Within us, as individuals, we found that God was doing a work to save us using the scriptures to do it. The living word of God. Uh, The word of God is where we found out or how we found out about the gospel. No finding out about the gospel unless you know what the word of God says. It's the gospel that presents it to us. And then upon repentance and faith, in that gospel, God plants an imperishable seed in us. The imperishable seed of the word. And that's what our new birth emerges from. We also saw, as we were into the into this beginning part of the second chapter, that within us, God is doing a work to help us grow. Not just saving us, but helping us to mature and become disciples, more Christ-like. And an indispensable part of the work that he's doing is interwoven with his word. The word of God is indispensable to growth. Let's put it a different way. There is no growth as a believer, apart from the Word of God. Now, there are other dynamics to growth, 
The role of the Holy Spirit in dwelling our lives is a key to that. The determination to be obedient. So there are other factors. But brothers and sisters, if you remove the Word of God from a believer, for all intents and purposes at least, they don't grow, no matter what else might be true. Because it is the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the Word of God that changes us. As 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 puts it, it's the Word of God that works within us. And so the Word of God, crucial to salvation, crucial to growing. Last time, as we turn attention to these opening verses I read to you in verses 4 and 5, we saw that God was involved in a spiritual construction project. And the image changes in 1 Peter from the image of a new birth and the seed of God being planted and so forth, now to a construction project sort of imagery, the building of a structure. And we learned in those verses that God is taking us, now as redeemed people growing, He is taking us as living stones to build a living spiritual house with. But we also learned that that structure that God is constructing is not a physical structure. It's not a physical building. In the Old Testament, God made a couple physical buildings that in a special way housed the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, he's omnipresent. So even in that sense, it wasn't that he was restricted to those locations, but in a special sense, that's where you met with him. In the tabernacle, in the wilderness, for example, and then later on in the temple. So there was a special facility-related interaction with God. That was the Old Testament. The wonder of the New Testament, of the New Covenant period, is that God is not involved in facility construction in terms of a building like the tabernacle or the temple. God's presence, in a special way, is found within the spiritual house. And the spiritual house is talking about the family relationship between the redeemed children, the church family. It's when they gather. It's not the church building. It's the church family that now is that presence of the Lord share something with you and uh, challenge you about it. Think about it. Uh, I'm challenging you about it, not because I think anybody had bad intents, but listen, one of the wrong things, and let me underscore wrong things, that you can tell your children is, let's gather and go to God's house. The church is not God's house. It's a building. Now, people say that and don't mean anything bad by it, But what you've just taught your child is Old Testament, Old Covenant. You can say to the child, we're going to gather with the church family because that's where God is. God's special presence there. God's house is this group of people. Yeah, okay, that's part of the whole teaching process with our kids. Don't do the other. Why? Because I've known Christians who have had to spend years and years and years unlearning what was well-intended but wrong that was taught them early. I'm thankful God gave us a facility, but it isn't God's house. You're God's house. No leaky roof in God's house. (laughs) Uh, Might be some other issues, and that's because we're all frail and growing, and there are going to be problems, but not that type of problem. Now, the facility that we might meet in, 
might have a leaky roof, you know, but, but that's not God's house. It's God's family. I like, we used to have a song that years and years ago I used it in the church that was like, the church is not a building. Church is a people. And we, we would do it when the kids were with us because they kept wanting to underscore that message. Church isn't a building. It's a people. It's a people. That is the new covenant wonder. Well, in that construction project of the people, First Peter turns our attention to God's work in doing that. He's telling us that in that construction project, Jesus Christ is the living stone. You know, the whole construction project rests on that, on him. He is the living stone, and as we'll see today, that living stone is actually the cornerstone of the whole construction project. And because of that, it says the the Heavenly Father looks at the Son as chosen and precious. And if you ever wondered whether the building project that we're talking about is important to God, that ought to settle it for you. He's looking at the one who is the living stone that is central to that project. And he says, this living stone is chosen and precious to me. What's being built on him is important. And that's chosen and necessary. He says, in this construction project built on the living stone, we are living stones in him. Uh, We we make up the walls. (laughs) God puts us there. I like that again because we're, we're like bricks in this spiritual thing that God is doing. You know, we're put in these places. But uh, to the degree that we are surrendered and obedient to growing in Him, uh, that's a good thing. To the degree that we stumble and struggle with carnality and refuse and rebel against the Lord, then we're like bricks that keep leaving the wall. You know, you lay out the, you got, you got the mortar in, you're putting the brick down, you go ahead and there's several holes there. It's like, well, what happened? Not a brick left, you know, or the bricks over here. Or the one that didn't want to be in that wall, it wanted to be over in this wall. That imagery, I think, really gets at the heart of the problem of living stones. And yet, that's what God is choosing to use. The only solution to it is to make sure that there's never a day that you're not surrendered to the Lord. Never a day where you're not seeking to grow as a disciple. Because then it makes much higher likelihood you'll stay where he puts you. And he has a reason for putting you where he puts you. As a believer. He's making a spiritual house to add a corporate witness to the individual witness of our individual redemption. God wants both witnesses seen. A community without that corporate witness is impoverished. It can't really see the gospel in the way God wants it. In the same way, a community without individual changed people, coming to know Christ, being made new creations, without that sort of witness is also impoverished. And you know there's a lot of communities don't have many of either. And God says, this is all about light in the darkness. I'm wanting to build both of these things. He says, in this construction project, the redeemed, who are the bricks, are also the priests. Well, isn't that an interesting picture? We talked about that last week. (laughs) You're not only made part of the wall, spiritually speaking, you're part of the action inside the wall. No, here's here's the building he's building, and you've got a task in the building. Your task isn't solely to be a brick in the wall, although it is that, spiritually speaking, but you're also priests. 
one of the wonders of the New Testament and the New Covenant period is that all the believers are priests, not just a selected group. One of the core concepts of the Reformation period was the priesthood of all believers. Then it wasn't just from that, it was the scriptural concept. God has made us a priesthood of all believers. We have differing gifts, of course, differing calls, but not a differing rank. We're all priests. Everybody's on that level. That's why from the very beginning of my ministry, as I started to take the Word of God seriously, I avoided scrupulously that term, priest, when it was used in a distinctive manner to set aside certain individuals. It's an unbiblical concept. That's so often not a bad intended thing on the part of people, but you can have reasonable intentions and still be communicating a false idea. And anytime we communicate something contrary to what the scripture says, it has consequences we may not have intended. And I believe that's a, a serious issue. He also says, as priests, and all of us are, he's going to come back to that theme, by the way, which is why I'm underscoring it here. We'll see, we can talk about that as we get Lord willing next week into the verses. But he says, as priests, we're called upon to be offering spiritual sacrifices to God. However, what we offer is not a sin sacrifice. Our lamb already was slain once for all, raised from the dead. We don't go about re-sacrificing him. No. The spiritual sacrifices that he's talking about here are like Romans 12.1, present your body as a living sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about the sacrifices of praise, of good works, of stewardship. Psalm 51 talks about the sacrifice of a humble, contrite heart before the Lord. Those are the sacrifices the priesthood of believers are offering. We're not offering the other. I won't go into that further, but anybody who has much of a sense of the breadth of Christendom understands how that very point is an accusatory challenge to those that somehow view the role of clergy is offering afresh a sin sacrifice, and without having done that, people don't find forgiveness. Isn't it wonderful that the worthy one's already been found, as we sang in, Rome, in Revelation 5? He's already died. He's already paid for sin. He's already risen not to die again. Our priesthood has nothing to do with sacrifice of that sort. It has everything to do with these other aspects of spiritual sacrifice. Well, I pull myself from that, because I would love to spend more time on that, but I won't. Let's continue moving ahead. Today, in these verses, beginning in 6 especially, we find that in this construction project, God gives us three more images that expand our understanding of that construction project and the one who is central to it the living stone that we've already talked about. And he tells us in these verses that the living stone is also the cornerstone. And he tells us that that living stone is also the capstone. And he tells us that for some, the living stone is the stumbling stone. 
Let's look at them together. See what God is trying to make clear to us. The living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone of the spiritual house that God is creating. He is the cornerstone of God's great plan of salvation. Verse 6 quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which is a prophetic passage talking about the Messiah and what he would do for us. The word translated cornerstone, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That particular word is really a combination of two Greek words pulled together. The first of those, the first part of the word is arche, which means beginning, the foundation point. The gonia is the, is the idea of angle or corner. The beginning point the cornerstone. In the ancient building techniques, it was the stone laid down at the beginning point of a wall or at the point where two walls were to come together and work out from. It was the central foundational sort of thing. We would approximate that today when we're talking about the foundation that lays in modern construction techniques where you lay out your footers, the foundation, and then you build up walls from those footers. Uh, back in the ancient days, they didn't use footers in quite the same way. But these, these critical cornerstones, that's why the Bible uses that image here for us. It was the most significant stone in the construction project in the ancient building methods. And a great deal of care was given to that stone. That, that, that had to be done right or everything else went wrong. I was thinking back in my remodeling days, uh, uh, where you'd be, in one, you'd be in an older house... And there was absolutely nothing square in that house as you started to work on it. And I used to think as I was doing that, Lord, maybe heaven's full of square buildings. I don't know. You know, that are, they're actually true and on plumb uh, because this job just took me four days longer than I thought it should have because everything was out of square. Well, give you an insight into some of the trauma of my life. But anyway, the, the, the building process... Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of it. The true foundation for our faith in the kingdom itself. He is the one, God says, is central to the church. What I'm building, he's the one that's central to our salvation. Remember, we can't even be in the church unless we're saved. So Jesus Christ turns out to be central with both of those things. And it is the Father who put him there. It was the Father who decided... Jesus Christ is going to be the only foundation. He's going to be the only way for a sinful humanity to find salvation. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to these verses, starting in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And he says, in whom the whole structure, meaning in whom, in Jesus, the whole structure that, remember, he's building that First Peter's talking to us about, this whole structure he's building grows, joined together into a holy temple of the Lord, in him you also are being built together into this spiritual house. And then he says, into a dwelling place for God 
by the Holy Spirit. Remember I said, in the New Testament, it is not a tabernacle or a temple building. It is the people being knit together on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ that in a special way becomes the dwelling place of God in this world. Obviously, he's still omnipresent. He's going to be other places. But we encounter him in a special way when we're gathered with the church family. God determined that's the way it would be. And he says, if this one, this cornerstone, this one I've determined to be the cornerstone, is the one you've placed your faith in, I make you two promises. Number one, whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. We will never be put to shame. Well, what's he talking about? Well, this word shame is an interesting word. It was used in that in, in the Greek language and then certainly contextually to describe a situation where you were trusting in something and later found out it wasn't true, much to your chagrin. In other words, it's like, oh man, I was taken for a ride. You know, <laughs> that didn't turn out to be true. What Jesus says here, there will never be a time in eternity where you will end up thinking, oh man, taken for a ride, this wasn't true. You will never be ashamed. You will never find that the cornerstone wasn't the cornerstone. Isn't that hopeful? I mean, I look at that and say, well, that's a settled thing, Lord. <laughs> I like that. No more, I hope so, in it for me. It's like, well, you said I'll never be ashamed. I'm not going to go there worried that I'll be ashamed. You're either true or you're not. You said I'll never be ashamed. There'll never be a time where, where he is not the rock I thought he was. I'm not going to have that happen. How's your faith today? Are you, are you settled on a rock and say, God said it. That, that's the way it is. You know? And he promises me I'll never look foolish having trusted in him. Brothers and sisters, but people will look foolish who didn't. Because what they decided to build their life on will not be that rock, that cornerstone. And there will be a day for all of them when they will discover, oh no, oh no, I built my life on what wasn't the cornerstone. And now I am lost forever. You and I, if he's our cornerstone, we'll never be ashamed. Praise God. You know, look at that. I can say that to you, but I feel like breaking into tears as I say it to you. It's like such good news. There's never going to be a time when I'll be ashamed for having rested in Christ. Nor will you. Nor will you. And then he also says, and so, and ESV translates it this way, and so the honor is for you who believe. It's one of the few places where I believe the ESV Translation is confusing, not clarifying. Uh, the King James Version and the New American International Version essentially translate verse 7, the end of it. Now to you who believe the stone is precious. Uh, which I think is closer to the concept unfolding here. Why the translators in the ESV kind of moved and used the word honor and so forth, and I'm not, not really certain. What's the point? Here's the promise. Not only will we never be put to shame, praise God. But he says, one of the other things I promise you 
is that with each day, each week, each month, each year that goes by, if you know the cornerstone, he will become precious to you like he is to the Father. Remember earlier in verse 4? <laughs> the one who, the living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. Same word, precious. And he says, for you, if you know this one who is the cornerstone, he'll just get more precious to you as time goes on. You found that to be true? Deeper sense of preciousness? Deeper sense of wonder? My Jesus. He says, that'll happen to you. That's good news. That's good news. No matter how much I think he's precious to me, God says he'll be more precious to me with each day, each week, each month that goes by. I like that. I thank the Lord for that. Now he also goes on and he says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This cornerstone... Jesus Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone, is also the capstone of the spiritual house. The word translated cornerstone in the ESV here, in verse 7, the stone that builders reject has become the cornerstone, is a different word than the word cornerstone in the Greek previously. In this case, it's a combination of two Greek words, kephelen, which has to do with head, and goneos, which has to do with the angle, or uh, the same thing as the previous word. Now, why, why did the word change? Why, why are we looking at a different aspect of the stone, of the angle? Because now, the Lord Jesus is not only the foundation of the spiritual building, he's the finishing touches at the top. He is the capstone. Literally, the head of the corner which is the way I think the New International or New American Standard Version translates it. And I think it might even be the way the King James translates. He's the head of the corner there. I don't have that in front of me. But they went to great pains to make it clear to the English reader that the word had changed. I mean, it was still a construction word, but it wasn't the same, capst- it wasn't the same as the cornerstone. It's a capstone, the chief cornerstone, the finishing stone of the structure. The Amplified Bible translates the Greek in this case, the chief cornerstone, and I think that, that gets closer to it, the head of the, you know, of all the cornerstones, it's the chief, it's at the very top, it's at the very bottom. I think the NIV cap, captures it best, though, by talking about the capstone. All right, the capstone to our belief system, the capstone to our new life, is how we see the Lord Jesus. This phrase, cornerstone and capstone, theologically is the same phrase as alpha and omega. He is the beginning. He is the ending. He is the foundation. He's the cap. And isn't it interesting, in, you know, in, in the uh, book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus, who is the worthy one <laughs> that chapter 5 identifies, is presented to us as the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. And so he says, in this spiritual building that I'm making, Jesus is how it starts. Jesus is how it ends. (laughs) He is everything from the beginning to the end. If he's everything, the beginning and the end, to reject him 
is to reject everything. You have nothing if the one who is the foundation to the finish is not yours. You have nothing. In point of fact, what we do with the cornerstone capstone is the foundational redetermination of how our life is judged by God. What we do with the one who is the beginning and the ending, the foundation and the capstone, that's how we're judged. Our life is either built on Christ, the cornerstone capstone, or we build on some other foundation. I mean, it's not like there's much multiple options here. There might be multiple options of other foundations, but there's only two categories. We either build on Christ or we don't. I mean, that's, that's basically what it comes down to. Is he your capstone or isn't he? I was thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in this regard. Starting in verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, you see all the imagery here? He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. But let each one take care of what I build on it, because no one can lay a foundation other than what was laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, that is the foundation. There is no other foundation. We're judged ultimately on the basis of what we've done with him. And that brings us to the third image he's using here. That the capstone, the living stone who is the cornerstone and the capstone, for some people, is the stumbling stone. God's chosen those terminologies, not me. He says, for some people, he is the stumbling stone. A stone of stumbling, verse 8, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is, verse 8 is a quote of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It says, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, it will be a trap and a snare. You mean the one that's precious? It could be all those things? Oh yeah, depending on what you do with him. Depending on what you do with him. Isaiah, prophetically, is picturing a disobedient Judaism. Stumbling over God's very provision to solve their problem. And he uses the image here of a stumbling stone. What's a stumbling stone? That stone that you didn't quite see until your toe hit it. All of us have had stubbed toes. Think of the worst one you ever got. That's the image here. For some people, Jesus Christ is like the stumbling stone. Stoving their big toe in a way that maybe even breaks the toe, but you know the problem with, with your feet. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? You can't you end up just kind of having, maybe put a little bit of, you know, wrap it up a little bit. There's not much you can do. It's not like casting it the way you do some other things. You just wait till it's not stoved anymore. <laughs> kind of keep going forward. That's the image. We all know what that means. And you also know what people, some, what you felt toward what you ran your toe into. And generally speaking, you didn't have a lot of really warm, comfortable feelings toward what you ran your toe into. Uh, now nah, you were, after you got past the things that you don't want to admit that you maybe said in your mind or maybe even out loud, uh, you don't feel good about that thing you stubbed yourself into. 
God purposely uses that image to describe people. Exactly, that's why he came. Our precious Jesus, remember that terminology in verse 4 and verse 7, can actually be an offense to people. It just seems unbelievable, but it's true. He says, that one who is the precious one to the Father, to us who have come to know him, can be a downright offense to other people, the stone of stumbling. Why? The precious one, why would he be such an offense to people? And here's the answer. Human pride. People do not want to admit they need Christ. They do not want to admit the truth of the gospel, which says you are hopelessly lost, a sinner with no solution. You have been in rebellion against God from the earliest moments of your life. You may have done a better job morally than some other people have done, but you are all sinners separated from God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. They don't want to accept that. That idea. It offends them as if they hit their toe on something. Because they did. It went against everything the culture ever told them. Our culture is a perfect example. What's it tell people? Well, you got everything you need just in yourself. No matter what you do, it must be right. Your answers are within yourself. You're good. And so you come to them and you share the gospel and, and the response is, What do you mean I'm not good enough? What do you mean God wouldn't take me to heaven? I, I, even, I even helped this stray dog. You know, what? Do you follow? Yeah. Do you follow the point? Humanity rejecting the cornerstone rejects fundamentally the reason we need the cornerstone which is we are helpless and hopeless by nature, objects of wrath cut off from God. No amount of good works changes that reality. What we need, we cannot find in ourselves. We cannot solve in ourselves. What we need is what only He can provide. And God says as a result, those for whom He's the stumbling stone will end up falling in the last days, which is the great contrast with that not being ashamed that I talked about. <laughs> they will end up being ashamed. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. You and I simply cannot repackage Jesus in a way that makes him not offensive to people who refuse to accept the truth of where they really are standing before a holy God. You cannot repackage him. And yet, that is the dominant truth in much of what's called Christendom today. They're involved in repackaging Jesus in such a way that he never offends anybody. He likes them just the way they are. Brothers and sisters, he came into this world to die on a cross because of what you are. Like he doesn't care? It doesn't matter to God? Brothers and sisters, where's our head? I mean, that's the reason he came. Because of the mess we were. We were hopeless and helpless, separated from God, without God in this world and without hope, in Ephesians 2. That's the reason Jesus came. I can't repackage him so that people think, well, I'm okay, you're okay. You know, my big problem isn't that I'm hopelessly separated from God and I face an accountability before him. My big problem is I'm just not quite as happy. Or I don't have as many friends. Oh, well, 
I've got just the message for you. Jesus will make you happy. Or my big problem is I can't pay my bills. <laughs> Jesus has a solution to that. You know, start coming. Jesus will make you wealthy. and Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. How can you read these things and say, wait a second. It ought to tell you how far things have gotten from the truth of the scriptures. One last word here, we'll call it a quits today. Uh, He'll be a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This grammatically, I want to make a comment on the grammar of this last point. The the word destined in the grammar of the sentence is linked to the outcome, not the person. Let me repeat that. The word destined in this verse, grammatically, is linked to the outcome, not the person. Now, what does that mean? This particular verse is not saying that certain people were destined to, to reject Christ or destined to stumble. In that. That's not what it's saying. Uh, there may be some other passages where, where we can objectively assess that, but that's not this passage. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that the verse is saying those who reject the gospel are destined inescapably to face accountability before the God who is really there. That is what's destined. In other words, that is the immovable, inflexible, unchanging reality. They will. God has said this, this is going to happen. Leading, leading no, and they often do. And the reason that they have this inescapable accountability before God is because they've rejected the only way to escape that accountability. Because there is only one way. I was thinking of John, and I'll finish with this, but in John chapter 3... Uh, Jesus is speaking, you remember, to Nicodemus and teaching. And he listen to these verses. Ver- 316 is very familiar to us, uh, where he's talking about, for God so loved the world. But let me read it to you and go on to the next couple. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, some people stop there and say, well, God doesn't really want to condemn you. Not, nobody's going to end up being condemned. That's not why he came. He must have come just to give us an example of how to live or something. No, no, you missed the point. In the next verse, he says, for whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the only way not to be condemned. It's the only way to pass out of condemnation into life is to believe in that one. Everybody's condemned apart from that. So, Jesus didn't come into the world to tell people they weren't condemned. He came into the world because they were. And only he passes us out of condemnation into life. So there it is. Bottom line, we'll come up and land in a song. Uh, In fact, Alpha and Omega, which seems particularly appropriate, doesn't it? But the question before everyone is, is Jesus Christ your cornerstone capstone? Or is he the stumbling stone of your life? God knows absolutely the answer to that. My call in life and yours is to share with the lost world there is a cornerstone capstone there. And there's a way to pass out of judgment into life. 
There's no other way except the Lord Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No other name is given under heaven whereby we might be saved. Praise God that we know him. The cornerstone, the capstone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together in this day, together with church family, which is your structure. Keep working on this structure, Lord. And continue to guide and work in our lives. Thank you for your word. Be with us in this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.